Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. There are over 140 interviews in this podcast series, all of which you can enjoy on aarecoveryinterviews.com and all podcast apps. My guest on today's show, Mary M., is the sponsee of Sue C., a fascinating woman whom I interviewed over two years ago. Mary is also the sponsor of Alejandra W., a remarkable woman whose interview was featured during my first year of doing this podcast series and was recently reprised as an encore episode. To hear Mary's story within the context of these two interviews provides a rare glimpse of the generations of hope and support that AA naturally creates when one alcoholic helps another alcoholic. I invite you to search for and listen to these interviews on your podcast app or at aarecoveryinterviews.com. Mary joined Alcoholics Anonymous shortly after her father picked up his 20-year chip in the program. Her father's longevity and experience in AA was reflected in his willingness to let his daughter find her own way through the alcoholic mire in which she was stuck for years. By the time she came into AA in 1988, Mary had become emotionally, physically, and spiritually wrecked. A cry for help was all she had left. That cry, however, was answered by none other than her father, who took her to her earliest meetings. Mary's misery turned into sincere willingness to get and stay sober. Over time, she got a sponsor, worked the steps, and began her service work as a sponsor. The various milestones in Mary's sobriety journey represent the very worst and the very best that can happen in the life of a recovering alcoholic. At the end of each milestone were the blessings of continuous sobriety and greater gifts of experience that she freely shares with others. I feel you'll find Mary's story to be an inspiring example of good long-term recovery in AA. Her approach to sobriety is both enlightening and inspiring. So please, enjoy the next hour with my friend and AA sister, Mary M. My name's Mary, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Mary. That's what I say, because yeah. AA is a very welcoming place, and mm -hmm. I really appreciate you doing this. And I know that we were trying to plan it, and you had something going on this past uh, weekend, which I found quite interesting. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So it was Sobriety by the Bay, uh -huh. and it's a conference that uh, the past few years it's been held in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And uh, this time it was in San Jose, and I was very interested in going for two reasons. Uh, one, uh, a friend of mine was speaking Friday night, uh, Jeffrey, and I wanted to hear him and support him. Uh, also, I am a chairperson for a conference, the NCCAA, Northern California Council of Alcoholics Anonymous, that is one of the, it is the oldest conference in California, and it's coming up in March. We hold a conference twice a year. And so we had a registration desk at their conference to sign people up for our conference. Oh, so that's great. <laughs> lots of lots of activity out here in California. What's the uh, what's the format of the conference like? Is it speakers and workshops and that yeah, sort of speakers? Thing? Yeah. So speakers and then um, workshops. They had they, this conference had a fourth step workshop on Saturday afternoon that was mm -hmm. well attended. I, I didn't go to that. I really just went to the Friday night, Saturday night and spent some time at the registration table. Mm -hmm. But they had kind of the big three as Friday night, Saturday night, and then a Sunday speaker. These are people who are on the regular speaker circuit throughout California? Yeah, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. Well, you know, one of the reasons I started doing the podcast just a little over three years ago was because I noticed that when I'd go hear speakers, um, it, it was pretty common for people to spend the first 85 or 90 percent of their talk, you know, talking about what it was like and what happened part of their stories, you know, because those are always the juiciest parts, the most interesting to most people. And they reserve five to 10 minutes at the end to say, and then I got sober and things have been great. Yeah. And I'm yeah. sitting there thinking, you know, that guy says he's been sober for 30 years. What happened between the sobriety date and now? 
And yeah. so I, that's why I have a tendency more to focus on the what it's been like part of people's yeah. story. But uh, now, how long have you been sober, Mary? I've been sober for 35 years. So I got s- sober in 1988. What, what was your sobriety date? It's February 29th, 1988. So I actually get, a, somebody said to me one time, well, how'd you pick that date? And I said, I don't think you pick your sobriety date. I think it picks you. <laughs> oh, my god. You just goodness. have to hold on to it once you get one, you know? Yeah. Don't let go. Uh, the, 1980, the class of 1988, because there are an awful lot of people who got sober in 88. I feel like that, too. So are you in 88? Yeah, my sobriety date is January 1st. So oh, I, that's awesome. I just, I just got my 36-year chip. Oh, that's great. I'm right behind you. Two months. Yeah. I just I think it's really interesting, and maybe where I'm just aware of 88s because uh, because it's my year. So you tend to track the people, and maybe every year has just as many people. But it does seem like there was uh, some real stickers in in 1988 because we got a whole core group out here. So what was going on in your life in 1988 and let's say 1987 leading up to you getting into mm. AA? Did it just seem to be a good idea one day, or <laughs> what was the run-up to that uh, date? I would I would say the run-up really started in 1986. I got married in 1986, mm-hmm. and uh, when I was dating this guy, my dad, who was sober almost 20 years at the time, said, "You know, I think the two of you ought to sober up and find out if you like each other." You know, the point being, he and I drank a lot together. And so shortly after uh, we got married, he stopped drinking and Mm. he stopped drinking for legal reasons. So the whole time we were dating and engaged, he had this court case going on, but he didn't feel like talking about it ever. So we never did. Now, Howard, today, the person I am today, I would never just like say, oh, okay, you don't want to talk about why you keep going to court and... So it turned out he'd had this DUI several several years before, mm-hmm. and he'd never dealt with it. And so now he had to he had to deal with it. We just got married. He finally finalizes the court thing, and he can't drink. He has to you know go to some AA meetings. He has to take an abuse. He can't. So I'm just furious, <laughs> and I'm furious because I think if you had taken care of this sooner instead of dragging it out in court. I yeah. wouldn't have just lost my favorite drinking buddy. All that was unbeknownst to you? I had no idea why he kept going to court. Wow. I didn't, he had to go. He's like, oh, I got to go, gotta talk to my lawyer. I'm like, okay, go talk to your lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> no follow-up question because it just led to him being irritated. And, and I, I honestly think the way I was back then, I didn't, really, I didn't really care. It's like you deal with it. You're, something you did, go deal with it. Sounds like something that you didn't want to hear. Yeah. And you were doing a pretty good job of not hearing it. Yeah, yeah. And he wasn't saying it. It isn't like I wasn't, you know, I just, I didn't ask and he didn't volunteer. So then I kept drinking and, you know, things really started to fall apart. I had a job. I quit my job. And as, you know, part of my skills at the time, I didn't tell him I quit the job till I had another job. But things were really bad. So my primary relationship was terrible. My Work life was terrible. Mm. Uh, I'd had uh, my mother had had some uh, terrible uh, stroke a few years before, and Mm. I was still crying myself to sleep almost every night. And this was five years later. So it was it was hard. Like every aspect of my life was pretty miserable. And I I remember right. I wrote that in a journal. Every aspect of my life is miserable. (laughs) And I had no idea that I was the one who was supposed to have some effective, you know, capability to change that. Not until AA. Did you ever connect the dots with regard to your drinking or was that always the last thing you thought of? You know, as I said, my, my dad was sober, so he yeah. was connecting the dots. Other people in my life were connecting the dots, but I, I didn't want to stop. Just like it tells us in the doctor's opinion, we drink essentially because we like the effect produced by alcohol. I liked the way it made me feel. And I, I was going to was willing to pay the price until finally the price was just too high. And uh, I ended up I, I left him and I came back and um, a week later and I didn't drink for like five days. And then 
And then I started drinking again, picked the fight, went to a bar. And that was kind of the last hurrah to this date. Were those people around you suggesting or urging you to get sober or go to AA? My dad had said, if drinking is causing problems in your life, mm-hmm. you may have a problem drinking. And But he never said to me, Mary, you're alcoholic. You, you know, the odds are stacked against you. You've, genetically, there's just no way you're not. And certainly by your behavior, it's obvious. He could have said that. That would have been an, a legitimate assessment. But he didn't. You know, he really didn't. And so I think the way he said it, it it's like it sunk in. It's like, so somehow these problems, these problems, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm drinking, I'm hungover, I'm missing work, I'm fighting with my husband, I can't pay my bills, you know. A lot of it didn't become clear till I was sober a little bit. You know, it's like the crisis point brings you in and then, you know, you stick around and begin to understand just how bad things were. Well, it sounds like he was a, a, a very loving person to allow you to find your own bottom as opposed to all the experience that he must have had with not only his own but other people's bottoms. To, to yeah. let somebody crash is not an easy thing to do. And you always yeah. pray that the crash won't kill him. But yeah. sometimes it's the, the best way to go is to just let go, I guess. And uh, yeah. So let me see. If I do the math here, okay, you're, you're coming up on 36 years. Um, and your dad had 20 years when you got sober? Yeah, he had 20. He turned 21 the year I got sober. So he got sober in 1967. Oh, my. Okay. So you were you were like a year old or something like that or two years old? <laughs> I was six. You were six. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 1967. Wow. Yeah. So what was life like with a AA father growing up? Well, you know, he went to a lot of meetings and mm-hmm. he was... Uh, he helped a lot of people. He, you know, there were t- different times that people were living in the house. And so it was always just a part of what was going on growing up. Mm-hmm. And we honestly didn't think too much about it. It wasn't mm-hmm. like, I mean, we were not doing family prayer morning or anything like that. But um, if he was speaking at a big event, we would go as we got older, like teenagers. Mm-hmm. And I remember this one time before I'd ever heard him and my mom, they came home. She'd gone with him to hear him speak. And she came home and she said, Oh, boy, your dad just did a great, it was such a great talk tonight. He did such a great job. And I was, like, surprised because you're a kid and you look up to your parents, hopefully, you know, if you're fortunately fortunate enough to have that situation. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, Mom, isn't he always good? She goes, well, everybody's better sometimes and, you know, not as good other times. And that was, like, new new information to me. So I think it, it looking back, I can have a better assessment of it, but living it, it was just, you know, it was just kind of the way it was for us. Now, and I was always somewhat obtuse as a child. And so, I mean, I have one, an older sister and a brother who's just a couple years younger than me. And then a a younger sister, she's eight years younger than I am. Mm-hmm. And all of them tracked like what nights my dad had meetings and when he was going to be gone and what they could do. I had no idea. I remember one time my sister said, well, it's Monday night. He's always gone on Monday nights. And I'm like, oh, he is. He's always gone on Monday nights. And I just, I just wasn't as aware of what was going on. And I think it to me, like now I think about it and it's just a sign of my alcoholism. I was just going to do whatever I was going to do anyway. Sure. You know? And so. Yeah, I get that. Now, is do you have recollection or memories of what life was like around your house before your dad got sober? Yes, but not, um, they're a little bit hazy. I remember, um, I used to, I used to have nightmares as a kid. And so I, I remember feeling like I was being chased. And I think that was, that was a result of, you know, just the discord happening in the house. My mom Uh, left my dad a couple of times. She Mm -hmm. left him uh, when she was pregnant with my brother. And we went back to uh, Michigan to his, my father's families. Then my dad came out and drove everybody home. You know, they reconciled. Hmm. And then she left him again. Um, It must have been 1960, sometime in 1965. And Mm -hmm. we uh, moved down to Coronado with my mom, where she had grown up and gone to high school. And uh, she rented a little house there. And 
you know, but they were trying to put it back together. And then my dad ended up getting sober. They did reconcile in, uh, in like 1968. Mm-hmm. And then my parents moved into the, uh, the house, the house I have now, it's my house now in uh, San Ramon, California. And my younger sister was born and things started to smooth out. But hmm. you know how when we moved into this house, the three older kids, we were upstairs jumping on the beds, as kids will do. And my older sister said something about, this is so much better than when mom and dad almost got divorced. Hmm. And here I am in the middle of them. And I'm like, what are you talking about? They were never going to get divorced. Hmm. And they're like, when we lived in Coronado and dad lived in Oxnard and sometimes he would come and visit, they were going to get divorced. And I'm like, no, dad had to sell cars and mom was going to go to school to be a teacher. And you know what? It's like looking back. It's like, tell me a nice palatable lie. It makes me happy. I don't want to suffer through the reality of things. Yeah, I get that. So you were somewhat oblivious and maybe that sounds almost like that was a pattern. You didn't hear what you didn't want to hear, even as a, as a kid. You didn't see what you didn't want to see where your siblings around you. Were they filling you in uh, along the way? Were they kind of straightening you out or did they let you just believe what it was you wanted to believe to, to maintain your sanity? I think they were better at filling me in once they realized I was kind of clueless about stuff. But that was that was like one of the times that it really sinks in that both of them knew something that I wasn't aware of because one was older, but one was two years younger. You know, even younger, my older sister always like she walked me to school. She I mean, she really watched out for me. And I think that you know, now I just consider myself a late bloomer. (laughs) (laughs) We would have, like, they had this annual picnic. And so he would take us all to that. And then there would be a speaker meeting at some point at the picnic, but the kids were all off playing. So, I mean, I have friends who have brought their own children into meetings as they grew up because, you know, and this this one friend of mine said, she goes, you know what, I took my daughter to the bar. I'm, I'm, it's better to better to bring her here. What's always kind of struck me is very interesting that people whose parents went to AA for years still became alcoholics themselves, despite what they might have been seeing or hearing. I'm curious, how old were you when you uh, first drank? Let's say on your own volition. On my own volition, it, when I when I graduated from eighth grade. I remember we went to a friend's house and um, we stole these little cans of beer from her dad's garage refrigerator that was full of little cans of beer. (laughs) (laughs) And I um, we drank those. And so, you know, we didn't have enough to really get ourselves into trouble. But and, you know, I had another time, probably around 14 and went out of town to a with family friends who were AA friends of my dad's Mm -hmm. and they took me up with them up to the uh, Arnold, this little mountain town. And it was a family wedding. And uh, that was my first encounter with champagne. And I got humiliatingly, embarrassingly drunk. And, you know, no one really said or did anything about it. I, I don't remember getting in trouble. I don't know. I don't remember them telling my parents nothing. And then, uh, then I didn't really drink again. You know, we didn't have really access to it. And it, it's like the bug did not get activated by either of those times. Well, with him being in the program, I would assume that there wasn't alcohol readily to be had in, around your home, or did they keep alcohol for guests? They didn't keep alcohol. Uh, my mom didn't drink at all for many years after my dad quit drinking. Mm -hmm. And then I don't, it must've been sometime in the mid seventies that she started, there would be a bottle of wine in the house or, Mm. you know, something, but not, there was never like a fully stocked bar, like, you know, different kinds of alcohol. And there was, you know, there was never like beer in the refrigerator or anything like that. If alcohol came into the house for a party or something, it was consumed. And then it was, yeah. <laughs> you know, not available again for a while. So it wasn't easy for you to get booze when you were a kid. What, what was high school like? Yeah, for sure. But not, it wasn't until um, between my junior and senior year. And 
my junior year, you know, I was, I was 15. Um, and I had a couple of things not fall my way. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, a guy broke up with me. There was another big disappointment. And, um, and I, uh, I just got depressed and I just Mm -hmm. really didn't function. And I remember Mm -hmm. like talking to my mom about it and saying, mom, what, what's wrong? Am I always going to feel like this? What's going on? And Mm -hmm. she said, this is going to lift Mary. You're just sad right now, but this is going to lift. And you know, now I think, why didn't she take me to somebody? (laughs) I mean, honestly, I I didn't function. I really barely functioned at all. My friends would come over and they'd say, Hey Mary, you didn't go to school today. Are you going to go to school tomorrow? Uh And I'd say, well, I'm going to try. And I mean, I was, I mean, I was just, now I know that it was a situational depression. I mean, I was just moping about. And so that summer between junior and senior year, Mm -hmm. my friends, they're like, hey, there's a party. And they came and picked me up and off we went. And that, you know, those, those keg parties, those, that alcohol relieved me of the bondage of self. It broke down that wall between me and other people and I was functioning again. So that was a seminal time in your life, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that it worked. Summer. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, but, you know, most people start to drink 13, 14, and those who do get through high school without doing it barely get through. So it sounds to me like yours was in the last year of your schooling. Yeah. And I still barely got through because I didn't have any units from the back half of my junior year, you know? So... Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the thing. You know, it's like sometimes people say if you come into Alcoholics Anonymous and and uh, and you can't get the you can like people can't get the God thing or something. They'll say God will chase you out of AA. And I'm like, booze, booze kicked my ass. There was no way that, you know, that I wasn't going to try to follow these directions because I did not want to keep feeling the way I was feeling. Now, it sounds to me like there might have been some other things going on that you were trying to deal with by using alcohol. Uh, Did you have any of those kind of issues uh, that kind of framing your alcoholism? I think I I mean, I know that I had that, that, that one that one depression and I know I hit another one in sobriety uh, and. But I've, you know, I've always had anxiety and never knew what it was. You know, I get super anxious about whatever's going on. And it was, um, I mean, I think that's why I was attracted to the man. I was attracted to the reason I married the man, because he made me feel safe. And booze, booze did its trick for the anxiety, I would assume. Booze, oh, yeah. I mean, it just took it away. And then... But then what happened is I remember that last year of my drinking and I didn't know that's what it was, but I had a couple of really significant panic attacks. Like I was driving the car one time and I had to pull over and like breathe deeply for a few minutes and then start driving again. And I I remember thinking, what's going on? I'm losing my mind. But now I know that it was just that the anxiety that's caused when the booze is trying to come back up out of my system, you know? I haven't ever been diagnosed with anything, so I haven't uh, I haven't spent a lot of time in therapy. Although uh-huh. I uh, I think it's it certainly has an important place in our existence. I did do some marriage counseling uh, after we'd been married a while, and mm-hmm. uh, he he was a pot smoker, and so she had said that she couldn't continue to see him if he was going to you know be stoned every time he came in Mm -hmm. and so i finished the marriage counseling alone so that was you know seven or eight sessions just with me but you know howard at the time i was sober probably four years maybe five years Mm -hmm. you know there was like no way i was going to open up to this lady you know it was it was very surface i and i didn't you know, I didn't want it to be my fault. <laughs> I wanted, I, so I could have to like play my cards very yeah. carefully. It's like we're always the last ones to know. I know. Now, when you got out of high school, what did you do? Well, I went to uh, San Diego State. You know, like today, 
with my GPA, mm-hmm. and we had the SAT score, I did okay. I didn't do as well as my brother. He's really smart. I never would get into college today. They never, yeah. they would have said, lady, you are waitlisted number 472. <laughs> But back then, you know, I got I got into college. So and uh, my first year, I, I lived at my grandmother's house in Coronado and I went to San Diego State and, you know, I went in and I made some friends and I was taking classes and um, but I was drinking. And so that this real nice group of kids I made friends with, they had a cocktail party and, you know, they're drinking one or two drinks and I'm drinking seven Finally, uh, school starts in September, and mm-hmm. we were going to this big winter ball in December and uh, have this cocktail party, and I get sick on the way there, and they have to drop me off at my grandmother's house. I didn't even make it to the party. Oh, no. And I know they didn't want to be friends with me after that. They, I mean, they just flat said, we don't want to hang out with you. The way you drink is not the same way we drink, and it's not fun for us. So you made you made friends with the wrong crowd, is what I would say. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I did. And then I, you know, that back uh, the next semester, you know, I found a friend who partied like I did. And mm. um, that next semester, you know, I just had an emotional breakdown. And I remember my brother and my mom came down to visit, and I, they told me this years later. They were driving. Um, they were driving home and my brother, who I think I was 18 and mm-hmm. he so he would have been 16. And he said to my mom, you know, I'm really worried about Mary. I've never seen her like this. Mm. She's never been like this. He, it was the emotional piece. You know, he was worried about the emotional piece. And uh, I was such an emotional creature. If things were going well, I was OK. And, you know, so I came back home after that first year of college away mm-hmm. And then I just I went to a local college and, you know, things were OK. Things would be usually things would be going OK. I could. But then like a, I remember this one time this uh, boyfriend broke up with me and I I mean, I got a D in that class because I couldn't show up for the final because he was in the class. And that's just how I made decisions. Did your drinking escalate during that time? Yeah, it did. It definitely did. What kind of consequences did you have from that besides leaving school? Yeah, grades. Um, I, my boyfriend broke up with me. Mm. Um, I remember my older sister said to me one time, she goes, you know, you, people, you tell people you're doing so great and you're going to college and you're working part time at this retail store and this is mm-hmm. great and that's great. She goes, I don't, you know, I don't see you doing all that great stuff. She goes, what I see you do is drink. You drink all the time. And she said, uh, and mom writes your papers. Which <laughs> <laughs> oh, she, she did. So the consequences weren't severe I until um, around that same time I ended up getting a, a DUI. I, um, I was at a party at a friend's house. We ran out of beer. I uh, went with another friend to go get more alcohol and... Mm-hmm. This one guy came out and he said, you know, he begged me not to go. He's like, Mary, you're drunk enough. I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> There's no, I never even heard of drunk enough. What are you talking about? I know. And off I went and coming back, I um, crashed into a parked car and oh. got uh, got hauled in. Were you injured? Uh, no one was hurt. No one was hurt. Well, I was in a um, residential, and so I was apparently not speeding. Um, mm-hmm. The only smart thing we did was ditch the case of beer in the bushes, and uh, and then off here came the police and hauled me off. Um, and then a couple of years later, I got another one. So, mm-hmm. you know. What are the laws like in California with regard to DUI at that time? At that time... Uh, they were much more lenient. The first yeah. one, because I, I guess by the time they took it, my blood alcohol wasn't high. And so, I, and my dad got involved and got a good lawyer and they reduced it to a wet reckless. And then a couple of years later, I got the second one and I uh, I had to go to some DUI classes and I had a fine they didn't pull my, oh, they did pull my license, but I went in for a hearing and I got my license back right away. Hmm. So today, none of that would happen. They they run about $10,000 between your lawyer and your fines. 
Mm-hmm. And um, were they sentencing people to AA at that time? I'm trying to think, I didn't know. No, they weren't because oh. I didn't have to do AA. Yeah. I didn't go to any AA meetings. So th- that was before uh, Mothers Against Drunk Drivers really mm-hmm. became prevalent. But in between my DUIs in early 80s, you know, like probably 82 and maybe 84. Mm-hmm. And then my ex-husband's, there was, you know, just a change in the laws. And a lot of that was driven by Mothers Against Drunk Drivers. I mean, mm-hmm. they had all kinds of, you know, protests and information. And, you know, I think it's tremendous that you could see the impact of that. And yeah. it was needed. I mean, it was really necessary. Yeah, it was. And the work that they do nationally is really phenomenal, especially when it hooks up with a good local organization. So you, your dad, it sounds like, had an ideal opportunity somewhere along the way to say something to you about stopping drinking. Did he use that opportunity to say anything to you? Oh, I, you know, honestly, Howard, I'm sure he did. I, I do remember after I got the second one because I didn't want to tell him and uh, and I didn't tell him until I had to do like the um, the work on the side of the road. Oh, yeah. You know, like the Caltrans. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so um, the first day it was fine because it was, you know, 10 or 15 miles away. But the second weekend, it was going to be at his exit. At his freeway oh, no. exit. And I thought, oh, my God, I'll just die if dad's driving down the street and he says, well, that looks like Mary in that little orange vest. <laughs> that I just can't do that. I just can't. So I told him and uh, and I remember he said to me, people who get two DUIs are in a 90th percentile to get a third. And he mm. said, maybe, you know, maybe you should take a look at your drinking. Mm hmm. But I didn't. I just stopped driving quite so much, you know. Yeah. So that followed you into your work life after after college? Yeah, it did. You know, I dropped out of college at five years. My mother had that aneurysm um, mm. in 1983, and mm-hmm. it was just devastating. And she really did kind of shore me up. I was, there's so many pictures growing up and, you know, there's my mom sitting in a chair and I'm like right next to her. (laughs) She's holding the baby. I am right next to her. And she was, um, you know, she was just a, just a charming, beautiful, brilliant woman. And, uh, I, I really loved her and it was just devastating. So that happened in 83. And then, you mentioned marriage along the way. When did that occur? 86. And then I was, you know, I just worked retail. I just had a job at a department store and um, was moving uh, up with a promotion at a glacial pace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of course, so, retail. Yeah. And then, uh, and then I ended up leaving that job. I got married, uh, quit the retail, worked for a bank, quit the bank and started working through a temporary agency. And that's where... I started like learning how to work on a computer and doing mm-hmm. data entry. And, you know, that was that last year before I quit drinking. And they, you know, I call in sick on Monday, call in sick on Tuesday. And Wednesday they called and said, don't bother, you know, don't come back. And so it was starting to really show up in my work life. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook. Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the Big Book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the Big Book anytime, anyplace. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and or second editions missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. Did you try getting sober before you went to AA or did you try AA and slip a few times or did you get it the first time around? 
it was I did it like jokingly, like this one friend of mine that I really drank heavily with. She and I would say, "Okay, that's it. We got to go on the wagon. We got to go on the wagon." And so, you know, so we wouldn't drink for a couple of days, and then we'd look at each other and we go, "Let's jump off the wagon. We're jumping off." And then off we'd go again on another tear. Mm-hmm. And then the only thing I really tried was when I uh, when I had left my husband and I mm-hmm. flew down to my grandmother's house and I was there for a week. And I remember talking to my dad and he'd say, he goes, but honey, you're not drinking, are you? And I said, oh, no, dad, I'm not drinking. And I, I remember clearly thinking, what else would I be doing? Of course I'm drinking. I hmm. thought that. And so then I came home and then I didn't drink for five days. And then I ended up picking a fight with my husband and out. Out I went. So that was in 1988, right before you came in? Yep. That was a a Friday night, and I was, like, really sick all weekend. And then my dad came and picked me up on Monday, that Monday, and took me to to a meeting. And Hmm. I I was walking across the parking lot, and my head was hanging down, and I felt terrible. And this friend of my dad's yelled out, hey, Mary, we've been waiting for you. (laughs) Jeez, I hate those guys. (laughs) I know. (laughs) <laughs> I know, I know. Another friend of his said later after, uh, you know, some some months later, she said, I knew you were alcoholic the day I met you. And oh. she met me. She, I was probably 13 when she met me. Yeah, it sounds to me like you got it. What were your early days and weeks and months like in the program? You know, it's it's such a it's such a magic time when you look back because something from meeting one to meeting two, something makes you go back to meeting two. And so at that first meeting, there was this woman and she said, uh, I don't I didn't know if I was alcoholic. What I knew is that I was a really nice lady who drank a little bit too much sometimes. And I thought I could be that. That's okay with me. And I knew that I found hope, but I didn't have those words yet. Right. I just felt slightly less awful. Hmm. And um, and then I was like that first week of sobriety, you know, I was just going to a meeting every day and, and I was shaky. Oh my gosh, I was so shaky. And I was working at a, um, at a temporary job and I was doing data entry. And so I'm doing, I'm keying this information in, but mm-hmm. my brain is thinking, I will not drink today. I will not drink today. I will not drink today. I mean, not drinking consumed me at the beginning. So you were white knuckling it, huh? Yeah. I mean, I was going to meetings, but I mean, it was like every thought was about, I don't want to drink. I don't want to drink. So the compulsion hadn't yet been lifted. No, it did. It was not lifted. It it was lifted sometime in that first month, month and a half, but it Hmm. was pretty strong. It wasn't, it wasn't every second after the first couple of weeks, but it was always present at the beginning. And a good friend of mine got sober just a few days after I did, and uh, she was on fire for Alcoholics Anonymous. And so she she just kind of carried me along at the beginning. You had a running buddy at the time then, huh? I did. I did. And we did our 90 meetings in 90 days. We did that together. And she had a sponsor, so I got a sponsor. You know, it uh-huh. was it was that ego and competition. I mean, I always thought I was smarter than her. I always, to this day, I think I'm smarter than her. And I thought, if she, if she's, she's not getting ahead of me, you know? That's great. <laughs> Let's compete to see who gets sober, you know, and who stays sober. But it takes what it takes, right? It takes what it takes. And I remember just being furious. People would say, well, I went to rehab and I think I want to go to rehab. Why can't I go to rehab? And and so I was really mad that I didn't get that. And then as time went on, what I what I found out is that what I needed was Leslie to get sober because I needed her and her enthusiasm to carry me along till I was, you know, had enough of a foundation of being sober that I could stay sober through my own efforts, you know, and with meetings and a sponsor and God oh, yeah. and steps. Of course. And, yeah. of course. So unbeknownst to you, you were helping yourself by helping someone else. Yeah. Or she was helping me. <laughs> well, yeah. If you were if you were doing it to keep her on the right track and she was helping you, it sounds to me like a really great relationship for early sobriety. Oh, yeah. What did you think about the uh, when you first came in and let's say during your early days of sobriety, what did you think about the big book and about the steps? So when I first opened the big book, 
I thought, oh my gosh, they are so bossy. Oh my, stop! <laughs> oh my God, I thought it was awful. And but what I could read was the stories in the back. Oh yeah, I, that's what I could read. And and it made me think of that when you were talking about why you started doing the interviews, so that you could kind of go in depth and you know the early days and also like so, so sober time because. Sure. Those stories in the big book, all of them, it's like, you know, if the page, if it's eight pages long, it's six pages of identification and the what it was like and then what happened. And then now everything's good. Yeah. But, but I thought about that. It's like that's the format in some of those stories. But I mm. could identify the identification happened. Yeah, that's great. So you, you had a sponsor. You were reading the big book. Tell me what you thought about prayer and the word God in the steps. I um I was okay with God in the steps and I you know I I believed in God. Mm-hmm. I I was we were raised our family was raised Catholic uh, because my dad was Catholic and my mother had promised her mother-in-law my grandmother that mm-hmm. she would raise the children Catholic. And so we had done all the sacraments. I always said I did all the sacraments until the divorce. <laughs> <laughs> So I believed in God. I wasn't super active. I mean, we weren't doing church by then. And I remember uh, when my little sister was born and my dad was taking us to, to church every Sunday mm-hmm. and my mom, my mom didn't go. And I said, Mom, how come we have to go to church, but you don't go to church? And she said, um, you know, Mary, there will come a time in your life where uh, you're going to need to have a relationship with God. And this is what's going to help you have a, a foundation for that. Wow. Which I thought was really interesting because as time went on, my mom, you know, we come to find out my mom didn't really, really believe in God. What she sounds like what she was giving you was what AA gives us. And that is the op- opportunity to know about the importance of having a concept of a higher power, but also the gifts that it will bring us if we can do that. She sounds like a really remarkable lady. She was. She really was. So when about did you start doing service work and sponsoring, and what did that look like? Oh, my goodness. Um, I was probably around two, between two and three years sober when I first mm-hmm. started sponsoring people. The very beginning was very bumpy. <laughs> so I had moved from the area I was in when I was less than a year sober. Um, mm-hmm. My husband and I, the husband at the time, we moved out um, to this town that's about an hour away and I started going to meetings at that fellowship and then I got a sponsor out there because my sponsor here told me I was too crazy to have a sponsor who lived an hour away yeah I guess so I I always tell people I go and now my sponsor lives in Texas and I live in California (laughs) so that's that's a sign of progress oh yeah I'd like a couple of gals had asked me to sponsor them and they you know they were like drunk within a week and hmm. I just thought, what am I doing? What's wrong with me? What is wrong with me? And I remember I went to a meeting. I mean, you asked me, Howard, what it was like, and this is what it was like. Yeah. I went to a meeting and I said, three different women have asked me to sponsor them. And then they went and got drunk. And so the next person that asks me, I'm going to say, did you want to go to the liquor store now and save <laughs> us both some time? <laughs> And not so, a bad, not a bad strategy, actually. <laughs> well, I guess I could use it to see if they were really willing to go to any right. length. But you know, I was so full of this sense of failure and anger and just mm. disappointment. And what did I do? I was so much about me instead of you know these women were grasping at something. Probably they thought it was going to help them, but they, you know, I was I had two and a half years somewhere in that neighborhood. Uh, I remember a gal who did stay sober and I went and um, was working some steps with her and we just did the first step. So this woman and she told me her story and her story was horrible. Hmm. Her own experience as a child uh, and her experience with her own children. I I tried to stay composed when she's telling me the story that I find horrific Mm -hmm. and I'm thinking to myself I couldn't survive this. I don't know what to say to this woman. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking in my head, God, please help me with this. And so, you know, I just said, you know, we have these steps, we have a whole process, we're going to go through all of this. And, and, you know, like, let's say a prayer and thank you for being so honest. You know, I just made some noise 
And I went home and I was feeling like like traumatized by yeah. this story I've just heard. And I went and I called my sponsor and I said, I don't know what to do. If this was my story, I'd still be drunk. Yeah. And she said, Mary, that's why this is not your story. You have your whole story and you just, you know, help her, help her find God, help her with those steps. That's all you can do. And so that was a really powerful lesson. Yeah. You know, in a, another time, a few years later, I was sponsoring a gal and, uh, and she was having all this trouble with her husband and the behavior she was telling me, I'm like, you got to get out. <laughs> you got to call the police. <laughs> I, I just thought this, you, the story you're telling me is crazy and you just got to get the hell out of there. And, you know, I wouldn't give that advice today. I'd ask some more questions oh, yeah. and I'd, you know, make sure someone's safe. But I was early on, I was more reactive. You know, I didn't have... Um, I just didn't have the same depth that I do today. And, uh, and I mean, sometimes someone might need to get out, but I don't think that was appropriate advice at the time. So I think there is a seasoning process that happens. Oh, yeah. Did anybody, when you went in after those first attempts to sponsor people and it didn't work, did anyone ask you the question, did you stay sober through that? Uh, my sponsor did. God bless her. Then you hear sometime, my sponsoring is 100% effective. Oh, really? Everybody stays sober? No, but I've stayed sober. To me, sponsorship is one of the great gifts of the program. How do you feel about it in general? I agree. I think that that relationship is sacred. I am so appreciative. I've had three women that have sponsored me and um, over the course of the years. And those relationships, um, they are so deep and so powerful. Mm -hmm. And it's there's such a, a trust that's, that develops. And, you know, the women I sponsor, they have come to me at uh, it just, it's just God's timing. That's one of the things that gives me such a faith in mm -hmm that there is some type of divine orchestration of the universe. and the, to, But to me, it's like those relationships are just so powerful and they come to us at just the right time. So I think it's, it is a, a total gift. It's a total gift. As you look back over almost 36 years of sobriety, what kind of things happen that, in looking back, you'd consider them milestones, either good or bad, where AA was really there for you? So in sobriety, probably those initial milestones, like mm -hmm. there was a time I was in my first, somewhere between three and six months sober, mm -hmm. and I was at a birthday meeting at our fellowship. And this uh, gal that I went to meetings with she got up to get her one-year chip. And as she started walking up to get her one-year chip, I burst into tears because it was at that moment that I believed if I did what she did, I was going to get a one-year chip. And so that was like the beginning of this faith. And what I did was going to make a difference in what I got. So that was a huge milestone. Uh, when I, I lost a pregnancy and I mm. thought I was going to die from the pain, I was mm. so disappointed and I felt punished. And I remember going to our fellowship because I was off work for a while and just crying. And this old timer man came up to me and he said, when I see people sit and cry in meetings, I know they're going to make it. <laughs> and so that gave me a, a strength and a faith. I ended up getting divorced and I was furious that I got divorced at, I think I was 37. And I thought, why couldn't I get divorced when I was younger? You know, mm. it's like now here, AA made me so tolerant. I should have gotten out of this marriage before. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and I just had to just keep coming to meetings, even though I was mad at God, you know, I just had to keep coming. And, you know, after uh, a little bit of time, I ended up going back to school. And I went back to school because this guy who I went to meetings with said, he said, Mary, I'm, I'm finishing this degree. I'm in this program. And if I can do this, you can do this. And I thought to myself, that's true. If he could do this, I could do this. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, so then Alcoholics Anonymous taught me to take the action. So mm -hmm. I made a phone call to the school and I ended up 
getting into this program. And so that was a huge milestone from mm-hmm. uh, that Alcoholics Anonymous taught me, and it was a milestone in my life. And so I ended up finishing college, and uh, then I ended up going on and getting a master's degree. And, you know, this is from somebody who had to drop a class if her boyfriend broke up. And so it's it's this huge shift Uh you know, early on in sobriety, my dad had this uh, really big cancer operation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I went to work every day and I went to see him and I brought groceries into the house and I cooked some dinner and I was helpful, but I didn't fall apart. And before Alcoholics Anonymous, when my mom got sick, I just fell apart. So those to me are the milestones. You know, another thing, when I first came out to, to Houston in uh, 2012, um, there was a job opportunity there. And this is really kind of funny, Howard, because uh-huh. I worked for a, a big company, a, a big oil company, of course, mm-hmm. Houston, and they have like an upstream division and a downstream division. And they also have midstream. But and I worked like central IT projects. But these two divisions couldn't agree on a candidate. Mm-hmm. But because of the traditions, because of thinking about unity and looking for a minority opinion and being able to listen to both sides and be mm-hmm. able to articulate those things in questions, I ended up being the successful candidate. And that's how I got out to Houston. So that was a milestone. And I was there from 2012 to 2018. You know, I did a lot of women's meetings. The sponsor I had was out here and she told me, Mary, you are going to be new in town. You do not want to be new in sobriety. Mm-hmm. You go find those women's meetings and you go find some friends. And so that, I mean, so that's what I did. And then I ended up finding Sue, who you also interviewed. Because mm-hmm. she's my spots now. Yeah, Sue is, she's just amazing. And her husband, Dale, they're just the him. salt of the earth. And yeah. I went to some of my earliest meetings with her at a hospital that they ended up tearing down to put up condos. And uh, the Rosewood, I don't know if you remember the Rosewood yes, meeting. Yes, because I was so confused because I would go to the Rosewood meeting at that church that isn't Rosewood, <laughs> but they call it Rosewood. That was the original hospital where AAs and al would walk in and the, the AAs would go to the right and the al would go to the left. So you had gotten sober in California, but you came to Texas. What did you notice and what... What similarities or differences, how did you react to the differences and similarities in the program from location to location? Yeah, one of the big differences is, you know, the way we chair meetings out in California. So it's like people spend 15 to 20 minutes telling their story and then they pick a topic. Okay, now let's talk about resentment. So, but the meetings in uh, Houston were much, much more um, topic driven or literature driven. And we have, I mean, we have lots of book studies out here in oh, California. Yeah. Those are big. But so that was a, that was a big difference. And that mm-hmm. if you were five minutes late, you could miss the topic and we were already sharing. And so I, I thought that was really interesting. And I also thought it was really powerful and a good idea. Like let's have more meetings where people don't spend you know, 20 minutes talking about themselves and then moving on. Although it's it's helpful for the newcomer to get that identification. So, and then the other thing that struck me as interesting, and I think it's because of that format, there were, because I used to go to this Friday night speaker meeting and they called it a story meeting. And I remember when yeah. I first heard about these story meetings, I'm like, what's a story meeting? Because that's not how we refer to them in California. Yeah. Once upon a time. Once upon a time. And so um, anyway, I thought it was interesting because there were a few people who'd been sober a long time, like 25 years, you know, 17 years. And they'd, they'd never told their story before. And so it, that was a difference for me. And then the other thing that really struck me was the clubs and that the clubs being closed. Do you notice a big difference between the mixed and the and the women only meetings? I do in a in a way. I think mm-hmm. women um, 
share more freely. And it yeah. isn't that we're talking about our sordid past. I just think we're more comfortable sharing our, you know, our vulnerabilities. Um, so I think that's that's one of the differences. I mean, I'm I'm a huge proponent of mixed meetings. We've got a situation going on right now in my home group out here in that we seem to be significantly weighted towards women. And hmm. which is great, but it's probably 80/20. And I think I think that that is indicative of something. I'm not sure what yet, but we also have a lot of men right in this area that do several men's meetings and these men's meetings have kind of taken off and they're they're huge which yeah. is great because it's the same thing with the women's meetings but i don't think we should be all in one or all in the other i and, agree i mean it's just been my experience we're trying to learn how to stay sober in the world and we can't just put ourselves in a bubble and have the same richness of of opportunity to work these principles in all our in all our affairs. And I found that I did that in Houston. I ended up, I, I realized that I ended up. I was at three different women's meetings a week, and I thought, yeah. okay, you gotta you gotta fold one out and you know at least pull in one mixed meeting. And so, and so I did. Well, that's a good thing to do. I think early on, my sponsor would be in those meetings with me, and he said one day, uh, you need to start going to men's meetings. He actually had me going to men's meetings exclusively for a while because he said, listen, Howard, it's clear to me that you get a little bit too distracted and, and with the idea of what are you going to say? How is it going to play with, with the gals in the room? And here I was married, too, you know, but yeah. you know, never be, never really being able to say what you need to say. For a while, I went to nothing but men's meetings, and then I went back to the mixed meetings, and I thought, who are these women? What are these women doing here? <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds to me like your 35, almost 36 years of sobriety have been just marvelous as compared to the life before, and I'm so glad that you have expounded on everything the way you did, because I think it tells the whole story. And it's the way that it will influence others in any period of sobriety or if they're not sober, will influence and maybe inspire them to know that beyond just sobriety, there's a whole life of enrichment and happiness to be found in the rooms and sadness and other things, too. But right. I love the way you described your program. That's great. Yeah. What do they say? Life is in session, right? <laughs> Life is in session. It certainly is. Well, Mary, I, I want to thank you again for doing this. And as I like to tell all my guests, I love you because that's what we are in AA. I mean, it's all about unconditional everything. And I'm so glad that you did this. I think it will touch a few people out there. I'm grateful that I had the chance to go to meetings with you and not know it for all those years. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure we were in some meetings together. Because when Allie first told me your name, I said, I, I, I think I know her. But everything's so fuzzy now, going back 36 years. Well, and also the pandemic. I mean, just that time of, you know, we all kind of got out of the rooms. And so... It, it's just strange to be, you know, moving back into in-person everything, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I still go to two Zoom meetings a week, but then I do seven other meetings in, in, the, in the flesh. But what I've noticed is that some people, have, they, they didn't avail themselves of live meetings once they found Zoom. And I don't think AA was ever meant to be worked as a remote program. No, it's fantastic. The technology is fantastic because I like I I felt so much more connected than I thought I was going to, but but nothing beats in person. Yeah, nothing beats it. Thanks so much for doing this and for uh, everything that I know you've done for the people that I love here in Houston. So again, many thanks. Thank you so much, Howard. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and have a conversation with you. Well, my friends, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Mary M., for sharing her story with us. And thank you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed the interviews in this podcast series, please share it with others. This show is another helping hand of AA we can all extend to alcoholics everywhere. 
If you want to contact me directly with any comments, questions, or suggestions, simply email howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. Please also take a minute to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all General Service Office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.